0: Thank you, worship team. Let's get our Bibles out. Uh, continue in worship and continue in our work and pursuit of the Lord. If you have your Bible, turn to Exodus 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have some uh, in the lobby. And if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift uh, to you. Uh, But if you were here last week, we talked about uh, that that starting last week and moving into this week, that really it was going to be one sermon uh, that was going to play out over the course of two weeks. And so we've just finished, if you will, our week-long Long intermission, and we're going to get back to work with where we were last week. And so if you were here last week, uh, really this is by way of review. If you weren't here uh, last week, this will maybe help get you caught up to speed. But let's just briefly review uh, what we saw last week and where God's Word moved us. And if you go back to the beginning of chapter 7 in the book of Exodus, we began with the plagues. and And What we see is that the plagues were God's emphatic response to Pharaoh's question in Exodus 5 2, when he said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And and so God begins to do these amazing things in response to that question. And so at the beginning of chapter 7, uh, Moses and Aaron go into Pharaoh's presence and they have their staff and they drop down uh, the staff. It becomes a snake, and Pharaoh brings in his magicians and they replicate that same sign and miracle. Although uh, Moses and Aaron's snake eats all of their snakes, which should have been a sign. Pharaoh missed the sign. And then the plagues, if you will, kick off in earnest. You have uh, the Nile uh, or the waters of the Nile turning to blood. The second plague being frogs overtaking the land. And then there's gnats and flies as the third and fourth plague. And we begin to see God doing these amazing things. And what they do is they serve for the, the purpose of revealing to Pharaoh, revealing to Egypt, and revealing to the Israelites that Yahweh, that the Lord, is in fact God. And there's this assault on the Egyptian gods. He is demonstrating, I'm not like your gods. I'm bigger, I'm stronger, I'm more powerful, I'm greater, I am better than your gods. One of the things that we talked about last week was this question that Pharaoh poses isn't something just for him. Right. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I, I, in fact, we, or I made the argument that, that you and I wrestle with this question far more than we like to admit or that we're aware of. And, and so, so I began to exhort us to see the plagues not only as this creative way that God is revealing himself to us, but also as a warning for us that we would not attempt to make ourselves autonomous or to isolate ourselves or to separate ourselves from the Lord. And, and and one of the things, right, one of the things that, that, that we saw in that is that Pharaoh is not asking that question with the idea of, I'm wrestling with the existence of God. What Pharaoh is actually saying is, who is that guy to tell me what to do? What What right, what authority, what stake, what claim does he have on my life to suggest that I'm to do this? Which I think is the issue that you and I run into all the time. We don't wrestle with the existence of God. At least I'm willing to bet most of you in an evangelical church in 2017 in America are here, not because you wrestle with the issue as to whether or not God exists, but I'm willing to bet most of us, if we're really honest, if we just would do a little evaluation of our heart and soul, if we're really honest with ourselves, that we fight against, that we're going to push against a God who's going to very much get into our space and impose his will on our lives. And that's exactly what's happening happening as we move through the plagues. And so the main idea that we laid out last week, which is the same main idea that we laid out this week, because it's a single sermon, is this right here, that the plagues are God's merciful response to proud souls that desire to evade God's authority over their lives. And at the same time, God is going to draw them back to himself. And so God is exposing the idols uh, in the lives of the Egyptians in the same way that I think today and, and last week, God is exposing idols in our lives. He's going to reveal the insufficiencies of those idols and those false gods and how they cannot save or rescue or care for us. And then God in his kindness is actually going to destroy them so that so that you and I would have uh, just full clarity in recognizing that it is Jesus and Jesus alone that saves and rescues us. So with that, here's what I want to do. I want to pray. um, Ask God to come and join us. We'll pray for another church in the area. And then to the best of our ability, we're just going to walk through these next two chapters and the majority of the remaining plagues. Why don't you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word uh, is sufficient to instruct. We thank you that your word is sufficient uh, to give us insight and wisdom. Uh, We thank you that your word enlightens not only the things around us, but God, it exposes uh, our hearts and and the sin and and the the idolatry that we have uh, in our own lives. And God, by your grace and your kindness, you do that so that we are moved back to the foot of the cross that we would find in you and you alone that there's hope and salvation. And so, God, we pray, we just pray that you would accomplish your purpose here today. Uh, God, I thank you for my friend and my brother, Josh Swanson, and for Hope uh, Evangelical Free Church. And just thank you for the work that uh, Josh is doing there. I pray for him as he preaches right now that you would be empowering him and working in and through uh, that body of believers as well. And thank you for that partnership that we share with them in the gospel. And, God, we pray by the power of your Spirit that you would come and you would have the freedom to speak into our lives. God, that you'd just be honest with us. Well, God, we know you're going to be honest with us, but we pray that we'd be honest with you in our response and seeking you to lead and direct and guide us in all things. And so, Lord, we love you, we thank you, and just ask you to open our hearts, our minds, and our eyes to the truth of your word here today. So we pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. So the title of the message, I know it's really catchy, isn't it? But it's the same title as last week, God's Merciful Response Part 2, okay, instead of part 1, but part 2, and and we're going to cover another huge swath of text, and I'll do the best of my ability to read as much of it uh, as possible. There will be some times where we'll summarize that, but let's just continue uh, to keep pressing forward, beginning of chapter 9, and we find ourselves at the fifth plague which is where all the livestock die. Let me read verses 1 through 7 to us. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into, go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. Let me just stop real quick here, and I want you to make note of that phrase, In the field. Because sometimes people get hung up when you get to the seventh plague, and it's like, well, all the livestock's already dead, why would the hail matter? I think the the specificity of God's word here is helpful to us, that the the, the livestock that are working that day are going to fall sick and die. And that's helpful for us when we get to the seventh plague. That's why not all the livestock uh, is dead. And I think it's actually a means of God's kindness that he doesn't just wipe them all out at once. Okay, But just make a note of that as we move forward. Verse 4. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And and so he's saying, listen, this plague is going to fall on all of your livestock, but you feel free to come on down to Goshen and check out all of our lives. They'll still be plowing the fields, and they'll still be doing that other stuff, because it ain't going to touch them. Verse 5, And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. Which I think is... Really a very gracious and kind thing that God said, hey, you've got until tomorrow to relent. You've got until tomorrow before this begins to unfold. Of course, we know that Pharaoh doesn't do that because verse six tells us in the next day, the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And then I love verse seven. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. So he's seeing all of his livestock and all of his people's livestock dying. He's like, okay, go check in Goshen, see if it's happening to them. And the messengers run down and like, nope, still plowing the fields. Just like Moses said, come back. Yeah, they're still fine. And you would like to think that there would be some softening in him, but notice what it says, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And so you have this fifth plague of the livestock dying. Now, here's what I want you to think about when, when we look at this. There's a few things that we uh, can press in on this that I think are, are helpful for us. But I want you to think about the impact of a plague like this in a society like Egypt. Just think of how expansive this is. Just think of how much in in the societal way of life and the economic impact that this would have. I mean, this isn't just cows. This is all livestock. So you're thinking about milk and food and clothing and labor and transportation and all of the different modes of life that are now radically impacted by this. And not just in this moment. You don't replace livestock overnight. It's not like, oh, hey, we just lost half of our livestock. By next year, we'll be fine. I mean, this is a long-term process to replace this. And yet I think the biggest impact, the biggest impact wasn't socially, it wasn't economically. I think the biggest impact was actually spiritually. Spiritually. Because many of the gods and many of the goddesses that the Egyptians worshipped were depicted in some way, shape, or form, or connected to livestock in in, in some way, shape, or form, or another. In fact, if you were to move uh, throughout the entirety of Egypt at that time, you would find multiple cults and multiple temples that were dedicated to various livestock. In fact, one of the primary ones uh, was a god uh, by the name of Apis, and his temple was in the city of Memphis, not Tennessee, but in Egypt, and in that temple, they actually actually kept a live bull in an enclosure, believing that it was the incarnation of that God. I also thought this was interesting that um, there was another god or goddess actually uh, by the name of Hathor. She was the goddess of love and beauty. She had the head of a cow. Not sure where beauty is going with the head of a cow, but whatever. Okay, that's the Egyptians thing, not ours. Um, But one of her primary functions was to protect Pharaoh. And so now you've got this goddess depicted with the head of a cow and they're dropping everywhere. And in one sense, part of the message is, man, your bodyguards down. Pharaoh, now you're exposed. And as they're dropping all over the place, God's assault on the Egyptian gods continues and he's making it obvious that he is simply more powerful than they are. Now, I think one of the primary... Maybe one of the more pointed elements of this plague outside of what's happening right here actually shows up later in Israel's history. Because if you move through the book of Exodus and you get towards the latter half, and we'll be in this text sometime in the spring, when you get to Exodus 32, something significant is happening. Moses is on the mountain. The people of God are rebelling and rejecting um, all that God has laid out in front of them. And, And they have decided we are no longer going to serve and worship the Lord. And what do they do? They build an idol that's shaped as a calf. See, I think what they're actually doing is they're returning or attempting to return to the Egyptian gods. And if there was any group of people that had ever lived that would understand the futility of that, it would have been the, 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 the Israelites. And yet, here they are in the wilderness going, yeah, let's go back to that false god that got smoked by Yahweh. I mean, it's just utterly stupid. And yet, I would suggest if we're honest with ourselves, we do that same thing, don't we? We'll just run back to these false gods. And so when you get to this fifth plague, here's one other thing, and then we'll move on to the next one. But, but I want you to notice the shift that's beginning to happen here. Because in the first four plagues, you've got, um, it, it's inconvenient, it's uncomfortable, it's problematic, the, the various plagues and, and the consequences of them. But now it's ratcheted up. There, there's a greater intensification. There's greater severity to the plagues. There's greater cost. Death now enters into the picture. And you'll see this increasing intensity in these next plagues as we move to them. Where God in, starts out really gentle. But he's going to get firmer and firmer and firmer, which is what he does in your life and in mine. And he will gently call you to repentance. But if you continue to rebel and reject against that, the hand of the Lord is just going to get firmer and firmer and firmer out of his love and kindness for you. So notice, Pharaoh's heart is hard. So here comes the sixth plague. Exodus 9, verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And then check out this note. This is an interesting trajectory that we've seen playing out. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. And yet again, look at what happens. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So you move from the livestock, now you've got boils uh, breaking out on all the people. Now there's a couple of things uh, historically and culturally, if we understand it, really gives us some really good insight into what's going on here. And it's helpful for us to see um, just the, the, the specific aspects that God is after. First of all. The Egyptians were both highly interested in and highly invested and well-known for their pursuit of medicine. This was a society that did quite a bit to advance uh, medical causes at that particular day and age. And so this plague of boils uh, actually renders their medical uh, advancement and their, and their medical uh, technology at that point in time, it, it, it renders it useless and irrelevant. Which in a society at that point in time should begin to rattle them a little bit. But this is also an assault on the gods and goddesses that they would have appealed to or looked to or gone to to heal them. And they've been exposed as frauds that they can't actually do that. Now listen to me. Listen to me, loved ones. Listen to me. Because you and I got to hear this. Because I I think what's happening here in this sixth plague is far too often some of the same things that show up in in our society today. Because I think our tendency is to be like, "Well, those guys are fools. Of course they can't um, be spared or saved in that. And yet I would suggest to you that far too often you and I are very well tempted to put our trust and our hope in medicine to heal us and to save us what we do is we make it more than it truly is. And we live in a day and age where where there is unparalleled medical advancement and understanding and achievement. And and there are so many things that even today are are, are routine or normal that just a generation or two ago would have been fatal. Here's one of hundreds of examples that I could give you. Um, When when Becky and I, when the twins were born, our, our oldest two were twins, when the twins were born, they were eight weeks premature. And one of them, Jason, had a number of respiratory issues. Now, when we were in the hospital, there was never any concern, never any fear or worry, none of that. And so we spent six weeks in the hospital. We got to know that staff uh, really well. And I remember one night I was sitting there and I was chatting with one of the nurses about some of the things with Jason and his breathing and whatnot. And I just said, I just had a curiosity how long ago would this have been highly problematic? How, how far back would, he, would we have to go to, to where his life would have been in serious jeopardy? And just casually, she's working on something and she just goes, eh, 20, 25 years. Eh, 25 years ago, he probably wouldn't have made it. At that moment, okay, now the, here's the perspective. I'm 25 at that moment when she's saying that. And the, the, just this, this, this chilling reality of, man, if, if you bumped us back a generation ago, I'm burying one of my children. So don't misunderstand me and like, Hey, medicine's bad. I'm not saying that I'm so thankful for, for medicine and what we have. But what I want us to see is I think our tendency is to be a whole lot more like the Egyptians than we think. In that we, that, that if we're really honest, if we're pressed, it's possible, if not plausible, that we are trusting medicine and, and the medical world to save us or to alleviate us from the issues in our life. We look to doctors and and, and medicine and treatment that that's what's going to see us through and not Jesus himself. And here's where we end up going is we begin to think, listen to me, we begin to think that you and I are actually sovereign over our bodies. Which is utter insanity if you just think for a moment about how you feel when you wake up in the morning. Right? Like things creak and they don't move the way you want them to. And it's like the first couple of steps, like, oh, it's kind of painful. And yet, what do we do? It's like, oh, no, I can control all of this. And we're lulled into believing that we can make it on our own. Because if I take this pill, if I go through this procedure, if I just do this thing, I can make it better. And what this plague is really doing is it's exposing the lie that medicine can actually save us. In fact, let me give you two things, two things that we just see in our day and age today that are helpful with this. First of all, I wasn't really sure how to say this, so I just said it this way. Unknown medical issues. Unknown medical issues. Here's what I mean by this. When you think of all that we can do medically, when you think of all that we know, you think of all that we've accomplished. And yet, and I've seen this in multiple people in this church alone just in the last year. Where you go to the doctor and they run all kinds of tests and you've been in multiple times. And the answer you get is something like this. We don't know. We don't know what's wrong. We don't know what's causing it. We don't know what's happening. We don't know how to treat it. Uh, Just this enormous question mark. Thanks, Doc. Should I come back? Like, what do we do? I mean, it doesn't exactly evoke a lot of confidence when, after running all these tests. Yeah, we don't know. We're going to work on that, though. See, I think what that really does for us is it keeps us honest in our allegiance to Jesus and to him alone. Phil Riken in his commentary on this part of Exodus says this He says, Medicine is a wonderful tool, but it's a poor savior. Can't do it. Here's the other thing, and maybe we don't want to talk about this, but I think it would be a disservice for us in in thinking about this and this whole issue that you and I just have to wrestle with is there's no cure for death. Just doesn't exist. In fact, let me put it this way. We have done nothing throughout all of human history to push that thing back an inch. Now you might go, well, we're living longer or we've prevented this disease. Yeah, we've done things to eliminate certain aspects or items that may cause death, but no one's actually not dying. They might be extending their life, but at the end of the day, Right You and I are going to find ourselves buried under the Earth. There's no cure for this, and there won't be a cure until Christ returns, because death is part of the curse of sin. And so God help us, God help us that we would not be lulled into this idol of medicine. Let I me mean, just two other things briefly on this plague, and then I promise I will pick up the speed here. Um, but first of all this, notice the magicians, verse 11. the magicians could not stand before Moses. Now, when we started this, they actually replicated some of the first miracles. Right? They, they made staffs turn into snakes. They made water turn into blood. They drew frogs out of uh, the water as well. So it started with replication. Now, they couldn't reverse it, but they, they could replicate it. Then you get to the third one with gnats, which I still think is actually a blessing to everybody that they couldn't replicate that miracle. And their comment to Pharaoh at that point in time was, this is the finger of God. And now you get to this point. And they're saying, we can't even stand before Moses. You think God's sending a message here? He's saying, Pharaoh, I'm playing with you guys. They can't hang. They can't play. They better bring more than what they've brung because it's not happening for them. Notice this other thing. Look at verse 10. This is what I think is really helpful for us in our lives today. Verse 10. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. Here's what's really, really fascinating about this particular thing. It was actually very common for Pharaoh's priest to perform a similar act to this in various ritual sacrifices and offerings to the gods, and it functioned as a blessing. So Pharaoh and his priests would do this, and they would take soot, and they would throw it in the air, and it functioned as a blessing. And here's Moses in the presence of Pharaoh and his priest, and it's not a blessing. What is it? It's a curse or a judgment. Now think about this for a second. Think about it. Because the physical material things that are being used, I think, are quite profound when we press this. They're grabbing soot from the kiln. In fact, I think they're grabbing soot from the very kilns that were used to bake the bricks that the Egyptians were oppressed and forced to make. I think what's actually happening is Moses is grabbing the soot. And, and as it goes out, this is, listen, this is God's justice on the Egyptian oppression Of God's people. That's what I think is actually happening here. Now, I don't tell you that. So the next time you're at some Christian dinner party, you can pull out some nerd note and be like, check this out. Let me show you what I know about the scriptures. Here's why I'm telling you this. Some of you are in the room right now and you find yourself oppressed or mistreated. You find yourself suffering unjustly in the same way that God's people, maybe not to this same degree, Maybe, maybe not. Right? God's people here are oppressed and mistreated, and you may find yourself in a similar situation. And what you you might find yourself saying is, God, why haven't you dealt with this? Why haven't you intervened? Why haven't you set the record straight? Why haven't you made known the truth? Why have you not done something? I wonder whether or not the Israelites understood what was happening here. I mean, maybe they got it instantly. Oh, yeah, that's what y'all get. Maybe not. Here's what I want you to know. You may not see with clarity how God is dealing with the injustice, but here's what you have to know. That's what God does is he deals with oppression. He deals with mistreatment. He deals with um, uh, all of those things. In fact, what he says in Deuteronomy 32 and then is quoted repeatedly throughout the scriptures, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. What I want you to grab from this plague is to hold on to the truth, to know that if you find yourself in some kind of unjust, oppressive mistreatment, God is dealing with that. And it might be obvious. It might not be. But you hold on to the truth that he's dealing with it. Love that. Seventh plague. And notice there's a lot of text that's devoted to this plague. What starts in verse 13 runs through the end of chapter 9 through verse 35 is is this plague of hail. And again, just the intensifying nature of these plagues. Let me just read um, a, a few of these verses here, starting in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. And then not once, not twice, but I think three different times, God gives almost purpose statements in this plague of the broader nature and the broader scope of the plagues as a whole. And so he says this in verse 14. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people. That phrase, so that, is going to be really important here in, in this plague and all the plagues. So that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And so the first thing we see about this, this, this seventh plague is, is one of the purposes is that the people would know that there is no God like our God. See, see, up until this point, it, it, it's been uh, so that you'll know that I'm the Lord. Now he just raised the bar on this. He's like, listen, there's no one else like me. Like, I, I am distinct from all other gods. Your gods can't hang. No other gods can hang. I am more powerful. I am sovereign over all of this. And, and so let's quit playing these games. There is no one like me. But he goes on and he says this. For by now I could have put, put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. It's like, man, if I would have said the word, we would have wiped you clean from the face of the planet. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power, and here it is again, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So part of this is, hey, listen, so you would know that there's no one like me. The second thing that we see is that God's name would be praised that God's name would be praised. There's both a missional component to this and a worship component to this. Missional in the sense of the extension of the gospel and people coming to a healthy knowledge and understanding of who God is, but but also this worshipful sense in the reality of God being praised and his name being worshipped. And see, this is what God's work does within us. It compels us to share him with others and to worship him in our lives. And so just even in your own life, stop for a moment and just think back over this last week. Can you see the work of God in your life? I think far too often we make this mistake of, i got to find this big, huge thing. God loves to work in the mundane, simple things. I promise you, if you would just get out of this thing of like, if it's not huge, it can't be God. And just go, okay, in, in the terrain of my life, in the last week, I think if you really thought about it, it's not, could I find one or two or three? Is it dozens or hundreds? That's the question. It's, it's just so blatantly obvious if we would begin to step back and really look for it. And so my first question is, can you see it? And then secondly, what is it leading you to? Does it lead you to, to, to share and to testify? And that doesn't always mean that I'm telling some non-Christian the gospel. Sometimes that means you just tell your husband or your wife this awesome thing that God did. Sometimes you're telling your son or your daughter, check this out. Sometimes you're like, mom, get this. God is awesome. Sometimes you're just telling your coworker. Sometimes you just worship but it leads us to this extension of praise. That's what God is saying. All of this is accomplishing. He goes on. He says this, verse 17, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will, not, and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I'll cause a very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. And then notice what these next few verses say. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. And, of course, there's still some left because not all of them were in the field during the fifth plague. Verse 20. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. I mean, what Egyptian was there that didn't fear the word of the Lord at this point? It's crazy to me that some of them didn't. But that's what we're told in verse 21. Whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. And of course, what we know is that they were then ultimately killed in this plague. Don't miss this. Don't miss what's happening in these verses. It is only in responding to the truth of God's proclamation that people are spared from the wrath of God. It is only in responding to the truth of God's proclamation that people are spared the wrath of God. That, that, that principle runs throughout the entirety of the scriptures. And so if you fast forward to our day and age, that's tied to the gospel. It's tied to the gospel. It, the gospel is not something to trifle with. So I was thinking about this this week, and I'm um, in our life group we've been moving through the book of John, and so we were looking at John 4 recently. And that's that great story of the woman at the well. And I was thinking about this reality here in Exodus 9, 20 and 21, and thinking about the woman at the well, and it's like, you know, she wasn't saved because she just happened to be there. She was saved because she heard the truth of what Jesus said about himself, and she responded to it. Right? It's only in responding to the truth of God's proclamation that people are spared from the wrath of God. I would, I would like to hope that everyone in this room has done that, that that's true of you, but I'm not an idiot. Okay. At least not in that sense. I'm probably an idiot in plenty of other senses. All right. But not in that sense. I know, I know, I know in a room this size, the, the, the reality is there are people sitting in this room that have not turned from sin and towards Jesus. It's just true. And you don't sit here and go, well, bummer, I guess I didn't make it. No, you, you, you learn, right? You see what's unfolding in the scriptures and you respond right here in this moment, just between yourself and the Lord. You'd be like, God, I don't want to not respond. I want to come under the truth of your word. I want to follow you. I want to submit to you. I I, I will live for you to know there's no one like God for God's name to be praised And so then just really out of summary here, the next few verses describe this utter devastation that falls upon the land of Egypt. In verse 26, we're told in the land of Goshen where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. So you've got hail that's utterly devastating over there, but I mean, I don't even know if it's raining in Goshen. But at best, that's what it's doing. And then you get down, notice Pharaoh's response in verse 27. This is is amazing. Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I have sinned for the first time. Like the light bulb is starting to go on for this guy. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, as soon as I've gone out of the city, I'll stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there'll be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. And here he's saying, here's the third thing. Here's this third purpose that you would understand that God has authority over all creation. He's got authority over everything. In fact, it's fascinating in the scriptures to see that these events being utilized by God in surrounding nations. In fact, if you go to Joshua 9 and the Gibeonite deception, remember that was that country right next to where the Israelites were, and, and they just saw them going into the land and, and, and conquering and they're going, hey, we've got to figure something out. And so they pretended to be from a distant country. Here's what they say in Joshua 9, nine: From a very distant country your servants have come. Now that was a lie, but this next statement wasn't. Because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. The Philistines in First Samuel 4 utter similar words when they say this about the God of Israel was the God who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. In fact, it's God's authority over creation that leads other people to realize that he is not like anyone else and that his name is to be praised. And so this moment here, that Moses says this, he goes out, goes before the Lord. It stops. Some of the crops are destroyed. Some still haven't fully come come up. Verse 34, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. And then you have this eighth plague, the plague of locusts. And God responds by this, chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. Right? There it is again. I'm going to demonstrate my power. Verse 2. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. This is for you, Israel. This is for you, God follower, that you would know That God is the Lord. It's similar to what we see in the book of Joshua when the people are getting ready to go into the land and God um, splits the Jordan River and they roll through on dry ground. He says, hey, pick up stones. Pick up stones in the middle of the the dry riverbed and build them on the edge of the river. And then when your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids come out to the river and they go, what is that? What is that? And you get to tell them what I've done. It's one of these moments right here. Son, let me tell you what God did, grandson. Let me tell you about how God rescued us and redeemed us. And so they go and they threaten locusts in verses three through six. Which honestly, this should have been pretty terrifying to Pharaoh. Your livestock has been decimated. Most of your trees have been destroyed. Most of your crop has been destroyed. The, the locusts are going to come in and eat whatever is left. I notice what his, pharaoh, uh, his Pharaoh's servants say to him in verse seven. How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back into Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God, and then love this question, but which ones are to go? So hey, I'm going to let you go, but, and for like the third or fourth time, but you just have to do it on my terms. I want you to compromise, and I love... The response of Moses in verse nine, we will go with our young and our old. We'll go with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Check out Pharaoh's response in verse 10. (laughs) This is awesome. The Lord be with you. If I ever let you and your little ones go. Now, if you're Moses, are you not tempted to be like, uh, he is with us and we're about to roll out. (laughs) Are you not paying attention, buddy? Like, where are you? And the irony of this statement, and yet in this moment, right, they could have compromised and said, okay, yeah, that's, that's good enough. Pharaoh goes on, he says, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. The irony of that statement is not lost on me either. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. Pretty sure they haven't asked for that at any point in time, but whatever, buddy. And so Moses and Aaron, they're driven out of Pharaoh's presence. They go out, they stretch out their staff over the land. Look at verse 15. The locusts covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. They ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that that the hail had left. This is creepy. Not a green thing remained. Neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. This is like winter in the middle of summer. Everything is dead And go on. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Here, second time in this many plagues. Therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So they go out, they stop, but again, as we're told in verse 20, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he does not let the people go. I think one of the most troubling things about these last two plagues is he seems, he seems, he seems Repentant. He seems broken. He seems to want to change. And then the moment that he gets what he wants, his heart is hardened. And I think it begs a really important question for us to wrestle through. And, and it's the question of how do I know if I've truly repented? How do I know if I've truly repented? Because Pharaoh's words are right, but his actions are clearly wrong. And so, let me give you five. Um, These are derived right out of the scriptures. Uh, I'm not going to move to the particular scriptures for the sake of time. But here's five, uh, five things that that I think are helpful for us. How do I know if I've truly repented? First of all, to realize that sin is an affront to God. To realize that sin is an affront to God. That you know that your sin um, is first and foremost. It's sin against God. It not only is it against God, but it's an affront to God. I think we're so casual with sin. We treat sin like it's kind of this whoopsie. Oh, my bad. Not realizing that, that Jesus literally died because of our rebellion against God. Right? We've got to recognize what sin actually is and what it costs. Secondly, we seek forgiveness from God. That we're sought to be restored from God. I think it's fascinating in our lives... We're no different than our first parents, uh, Adam and Eve, that our tendency is when we sin, and it doesn't matter whether it's big or small, when we sin, uh, our tendency is to go run and hide. So instead of going to the only one who can actually make it right, we actually run and hide from the only one who can make it right. And yet when we're truly repentant, we find ourselves coming to this point where I realize I have to run to the Lord. I have to seek the presence of God, and that if I have not done that, listen to me, loved ones, if you have not done that, you have not repented. Thirdly, there's this, that you seek restoration with the one you wronged. You seek restoration with the one you've wronged. This is the most obvious tell. This is the most obvious sign of true repentance, is that you'll go to any length to remedy the division. You don't care what other people think. You don't care what it costs you. You don't care what other people are saying about you. What you care about, what you are concerned with, what you are consumed with is relational harmony and peace. Now, I'm not talking about that fake harmony or peace where we just are conflict avoidant. I'm talking about I was wrong and we need to be restored. You seek restoration with the one you wronged. Fourthly, there's no attempt to hide or justify sin. See, you just own it. I was wrong. You don't try to explain it away. Well, yeah, but they... No, no, th- there's none of that in repentance. I mean, what is there to justify when, you ro- when you're wrong and you know it? Just own your sin. And here's the, f- the, the, the final thing that I think is helpful for us is, how do I know if I've truly repented? Well, there's humility and grace that's extended towards others. I mean, for the life of me, I, I don't know how you could be repentant and, and yet be proud when you're staring at your own brokenness. Look at how awesome I am. You can't do that when you're repentant because you're confronted with the reality of how broken we are. And so if you find yourself responding to people in arrogance or pride or self-sufficiency, you've obviously missed it. Because repentance will reveal our brokenness. It will reveal um, just our inadequacy and insufficiency. It will lead us to humility and kindness and grace. And, and, and this last one, this isn't just for... Um, Repentance. This isn't even just for when you really blow it. Honestly, this is characteristic of a mature follower in Jesus. You want to know whether or not someone's a mature follower of Jesus. Watch how they treat other people. That's a great sign. See, because what a mature follower knows is that, is that they need repentance. They need the gospel often because they fail often. You find yourself around a person who's telling you, yeah, I don't really struggle with sin. That person is clueless. That person lacks maturity or that person cannot see themselves honestly. And Pharaoh, a great example of a failure to truly repent. Fifth plague is darkness. For the sake of time, let me just read verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven. That there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, and then this next line is just, right? A darkness to be felt. That'll give you the heebie-jeebies. If you have ever struggled with depression, then you know what that's like. And it's consuming the nation. Which is quite ironic because arguably the supreme deity in all of Egypt was Ra, which was the sun god. And when your greatest god disappears, it's going to leave you with some emptiness and dread. And I think that's exactly what happened for the Egyptians. And it's the same thing that's going to happen for you and I. If you and I are serving false gods, if we are serving idols, um, when they disappear, it's going to leave us with some emptiness and dread. Because suddenly we're left going, where am I going to go? Let me just try to tie all of these together and just really some themes that drive throughout the plagues. And and obviously, we've left Passover um, to deal with on its own. But here are some themes that, that help us to see this in totality. And I think they're also quite applicable for us. Just briefly, here's five. First of all, this, what do we learn from the plagues? We learn the supremacy of the Lord over all gods. This is the supremacy of the Lord over all gods. This is a systematic cosmic beatdown of the Egyptian deities. God has left no doubt. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Yet yeah, Pharaoh can answer that question in spades at this point. And yet I think what you and I have to ask is, is God supreme in our life? We can laugh at Pharaoh all we want and be like that guy's an idiot. But what I'm asking, I'm not asking about Pharaoh. I'm asking about you. Is God supreme in your life, or is there some false god, some idol that you are chasing, and you're just as foolish as Pharaoh is in this? Secondly, we learned that uh, we learn of God's judgment of sin. He deals with the sin of the Egyptians, and He will deal with your sin and my sin. And it's His kindness and His grace that leads us to this. Thirdly, we see God as our savior. I mean, over and over and over again, so that you may know, not just revealing himself as as powerful and supreme, but revealing himself as a savior. This is the hope that we have that God rescues us from, from, from false gods, from, from idolatry, from sin. Right? We're seeing the incredible work of God. And so those are three things that we learn about God. Here's two things that we learn about ourselves. The first is this, or that we see, the warning for hardened hearts. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. The warning for hardened hearts. Some of you are sitting in this room right now, and your heart is hard towards God. Pay attention. Pay attention. Pharaoh's was obvious. Pharaoh's was grand and on great display. God will deal with hard hearts. God will deal with hard hearts. Don't remain cold. Don't remain hard. I mean, one of the most shocking things about Pharaoh is this guy has seen some of the most amazing work of God throughout human history. And yet his heart was unmoved and cold. Now you might say, well, I didn't have the plagues unfolding in front of me. Yeah, but you have plenty of other things that make it painfully obvious that God is at work. Do not, do not, do not miss God's kindness in his warning to you. Here's the other thing. Is we see the obedient and uncompromised commitment of Moses and Aaron. I mean, God help us, God help us that we would live with that same conviction that we would do what God has told us to do. Nothing more, nothing less. And I love that about these guys so many times where they could have said, yeah, good enough, good enough, good enough. No, no. This is what God told us. And so this is what we're going to go do. Their desire to honor the Lord was above all others. God's merciful response is exposing the issues in our hearts and it is leading us back to himself. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. God, we thank you that sometime what we need is the hard word. Sometime what we need is is a firm word not that you're any less loving, any less gracious, any less kind. In fact, sometimes you give us those words because that's exactly who you are, is that you're loving and kind and gracious and you care deeply for us. And so, God, I pray. God, I pray that we would heed the warning. God, I pray that we would hear uh, so clearly what your word is putting forth to us here today. Would you help us to respond in humility and conviction and repentance and brokenness? God, whatever is appropriate, would we respond in that way, Lord Jesus? We thank you, Lord, and pray this in your name. Amen.